Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer or artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field, along with contest winners and a few surprise guests. Today we are speaking with Nancy Kress. Nancy is the author of 35 books, including 28 novels, four collections of short stories, and three books on writing. Her work has won six Nebulas, two Hugos, a Sturgeon, and the John W. Campbell Memorial Award. Her most recent works are The Eleventh Date Through Bane and Sea Change Through Tachyon. Welcome, Nancy. Thank you for having me, John. So we originally met, it's probably half a dozen years or so ago, when you made a presentation from, I think it was uh, Writer's Digest, to the Writers of the Future contest. And that was the start of a, a, an amazing relationship, which ended with you becoming a uh, judge for the contest. Yes, I was the fiction columnist for Writer's Digest magazine for 16 years. And so they had asked me to present the plaque to you to travel to L.A. and do that. And uh, which, was, which was a great introduction to you. So how did you get started as a writer in the first place? I have a lot of friends who say, oh, I always knew I wanted to be a writer. I knew at age seven or I knew at age 12 or, but that isn't true of me. I, when I was growing up, it never crossed my mind that I would be a writer. I grew up in a very conservative Italian American family. And when I was 12, my mother sat me down and said, do you want to be a teacher, a nurse or a secretary? Those were the only three things she could possibly imagine. I thought about it and I said, I'll be a teacher. She said, okay, then you'll have to go to college. This was an, an amazing step for my family because girls just didn't go to college. But she sent me and I became an elementary school teacher and that's what I did. And it still didn't cross my mind to be a writer. When I was a child, I thought that all writers were dead and writing was like a finite resource, like oil. Because the writers that I was reading, like Louisa May Alcott and Zane Gray were dead. I learned, obviously, that they weren't all dead, but still, it didn't seem a thing that I would do myself, even though I had always read and read and read books. I started writing in my late 20s when I was at home with a child, my first child running around a toddler, and I was pregnant with my second child, and we lived way out in the country. There were no other women my age on the road. The older woman had all gone back to work, and I was going quietly crazy, so well, the children were napping, I started to write just to have something you do that didn't involve Sesame Street. And I didn't take it seriously for quite a while. But the more I did it, the more hooked I got. And then when I wanted to go back and look for an elementary school teaching job, there weren't any because it was the baby bust. They were laying off fourth grade teachers. So I went back to college and got another degree in English and began writing more seriously and teaching at the college level, not tenure track, but as a fill-in when people were on sabbatical or as an adjunct. And that's when I started writing and taking it seriously. So that's, I think that's, we have a lot of people that follow and enter Writers of the Future that are in, in similar uh, situations to what you had there. So that makes this all the more valuable for them listening. Like it's never too late to actually get started in it. For you, it started as something else to do, like sort of like as in. It never is too late. I have had a student, I had one student when I was teaching in Rochester who was 50 when she began to write. And she went on to publish a whole hardback, well received series of historical novels. And Helen Hooven Santemeyer, 
whom everybody always quotes, but I'm going to do it too, or mentions, was 88 when she published her first book. She wrote it in the nursing home and Ladies of the Club. Wow. We've had winners from the Writers of the Future competition that have, you know, they've, they've finished a career and now they're like in their 60s and they want, they've wanted to be a writer and then they're, you know, they get published and they're up on stage there. They're in their mid-60s all excited that they're, now they're a published author. So it's never too late. You're right. So on the subject of, of writing, now you come out every year to the, when we have it, you know, we didn't have it this past year because of the pandemic, but you come out now and you, you teach one of the classes at the Writers of the Future workshop to the winners. And one of the things that you cover is world building. So if we can talk about that, because I think it's one of the things that you're able to really contribute a lot to aspiring writers of, you know, an aspect to writing that's important to understand. Yes, I think it is important to understand. And I think there's three parts of it that you need to understand, which is how much word building do you have to do? When do you do it? And how do you do it? So I'd like to talk a little bit about how much. And the answer is, and all of these things that I'm going to say are, of course, things that have worked for me, but they're not rules. They're not hard and fast rules because there are no hard and fast rules in writing. If it works, it works. There are only guidelines that other writers have found work for them. And when it comes to how much world building, what I've observed in published fiction and what has worked for me is the longer the work, the more world building you have to do. If you're writing a seven volume trilogy, then you have to do a lot of world building. If you're writing a short story that is going to be, say, 4,000 words, um, you don't have to do as much world building because, first of all, you won't have the space to do it. And secondly, too many details will clutter up the major through line of your story. So the longer the work, the more world building you have to do. And the other thing about how much you have to do is the farther away from our contemporary world your fictional world is, the more world building you have to do. If it is set in the near future, for instance, as My Beggars in Spain is, um, I did not have to change too much about our world for that novella because it only takes place maybe 10 years from when I wrote it. But if your story takes place 200 years in the future, or if you're writing a fantasy world that is much, much different than ours, then you will have to do a lot more world building. So it depends, first of all, on how long your work is, and secondly, how far away it is from the world we already know. You don't have to explain what a bus is if you're in our world, but you may have to explain the transportation that exists in the future because it isn't going to be whatever we have right now. Right. So that's much world building. Good. Now, like you made the comment about beggars in Spain, and when I read that book, it was, it was so plausible because you created the whole, the basic environment is something that I was able to recognize. And then when I got into the science fiction part of it, then it was, it was very easy for me to move into that and to accept that. But it was, you created that, that world that was like, okay, I can see that. I can visualize that. And it, it fit within my realm of, of understanding that made it very easy to move into your, like I said, your science fiction. Well, thank you. Um, yes. On the other hand, if you're going to build something like the Game of Thrones books, then 
you're not going to be able to start with our world. And you're going to have to make it possible for the reader to move into whatever you're creating. And that brings us to when do you do the planning? I teach every year a workshop called Taos Toolbox, along with Walter John Williams, although like everything else, we didn't get to teach it this year. It's a two-week intensive workshop, and I mean it's intensive, in Taos, New Mexico. And one of the things that we have as an extra feature is a guest lecture by George Martin every year. And the students have a chance to ask him questions. And a question that he got this last year was, this is a very complicated world you've created. There are seven kingdoms, um, as many different religions, all kinds of backstory in the history, all kinds of characters with their own backstories. How much of it did you plan ahead? Well, George completely blew out of the water everything I'd been trying to tell my students because he said none of it. However, he said after he wrote the first couple scenes, he had to sit down and then he had to start planning it. And what I've discovered over writing for 40 years is that I save myself an awful lot of trouble if I plan my worlds ahead of time instead of trying to fly by the seat of my pants with world building. And to do that... I sit down, often I will write the first scene like George or the first two scenes in a red hot heat of composition. But then I have to sit down and say, okay, where is this? What is it like? And do the world building then. I write hard SF, but this this holds true whether you're writing hard SF or social history SF or fantasy. You need to have enough details and enough infrastructure to convince the reader that this is a real place with its own history and its own customs and its own culture. And in order to do that, you have to think hard about these things. So save yourself a lot of trouble and think about them ahead of time. (laughs) That makes good sense. So you had then the, the third part? The third part is how do you do that? And One of the ways that I learned the best order to think about a society was from Bruce Sterling. Bruce Sterling, if you've never read him, you should, is a wonderful science fiction writer, just wonderful. And he's also one of the most intelligent people I ever met. I was at a workshop with him, and we're going back now 35 years maybe, or 30, um, called Sycamore Hill. And this was a workshop for professional writers. 17 of us met for a week. And all morning, we critiqued each other's work. All afternoon, we read the work to be critiqued for the next day. And all night, we argued about science fiction and drank a whole lot of white wine. <laughs> it was the 80s. In the 80s, that's what you drank. So one day, I had, one year, I had brought a story I knew was not among my best. It was a long story. But I had to bring it because I'd run out of time. I was trying to work on a novel and I just ran out of time to write anything else. Well, when we went around the table to critique my story and we came to Bruce, who is, as I say, an incredible writer, very intelligent, an extremely interesting person, not exactly known for his tact. I knew that it was going to be a rough critique. And what he said was, and I wish I could do the Austin accent for you, but I can't. Well, Cress, this is a pretty good thing of its kind, but unfortunately its kind is completely obsolete and you're just rearranging candles on a moldy literary cake. Then it went downhill from that. 
<laughs> what he meant, what he told me he meant was, he said, you've taken tropes and bits from 50s and 60s and 70s science fiction and you've stuck them together to make a society for your aliens. And I don't believe it for one minute, he said. I can't tell who's in charge. I can't tell who holds the power. I can't hold, tell how, how the resources are allocated. Um, you haven't followed the money or whatever it is they use instead of money. You haven't done the background work. And I went home and I thought about this for a couple weeks and licked my wounds. And then I said, you know, he's right. I didn't. I didn't think about this society. And I need to think about the economic underpinnings of any society. That was Bruce's big point. Any society has economic underpinnings of some sort, whether it's a, a Bronze Age society or a Paleolithic society. And there isn't money, but there are still resources. You haven't shown me what that was. So I thought about it, and the next thing I wrote was Beggars in Spain. Because I was thinking about who has the resources, how are they allocated? And one of the central questions of that novella and then the novel is, what do the haves owe the have-nots? Which is an economic question. So one of the things I think you need to do when you're world building, you need to consider upfront some very important major questions. Who allocates resources? What resources are available, first of all? Who allocates them? Who has the power? Who controls the money? Sometimes it's a monarchy. Sometimes it's an oligarchy of powerful people. In a theistic society, it may very well be the priests or the church or whatever the equivalent is. It may be in a totalitarian society, a police state, that it's controlled that way. But you need to know this. You need to know who holds the power, how they allocate the resources, who gets what, and what are the caste levels within that society. Um, who does the work at the bottom? Who does? Is there a middle class? What is the relationship of the bottom to the top economically? Are they serfs, like in the Middle Ages? Are they slaves, like in the antebellum South? Are they um, workers that are unionized enough that they have a fair deal? Once you have the economic underpinnings of your society and all of that is in place in your mind and you know who controls the power, who controls the resources, who makes the decisions and what the relationship of the each level of economics in society is to the others, then you can start thinking about the details that will bring it alive on the page. But you will do yourself a big favor and you will make your work stronger if you think about the economic infrastructures before you begin writing or at least after you've gone very far into writing your novel. Okay, that's amazing advice. Now, for a novice writer, person starting, they might li listen to that and kind of go, you know, total intimidation. So in order to be able to start approaching it, because it makes total sense knowing your resources, um, who are the points in power, what's the, following the money trail, having all that down and researching it, what would you recommend then how a person gets, is it a matter of reading a lot about that or doing proper research or then you just start writing and writing and writing and eventually starts coming to you? How, how does a person who's a novice get into that level of well, background? it depends on what kind of thing you're writing. If you're writing a fantasy world that you're creating, you don't need to do any research. You need to just make decisions and you need to answer those questions. How, who holds authority here? How is authority enforced? What do they use to allocate resources? Is it money 
or is it tithing, parts of crops or whatever? Um, how is the authority enforced? That's an important question. Is, does the king control the army and is that how it enforced? Or are there, are there police states? Are there, what kind of rights does each economic level have? And are they allowed to exercise them? I mean, we have supposedly there are free and independent elections in Russia, but nobody actually believes that, including the Russians. So you have to, what is actually going on and what do they think is going on? And then once you know the answers to that, it will start to fall in place for you. It will. Uh, you can also read books that are really good at world building. A couple that I would recommend, and these aren't about world building, these are novels, so that you can see how other novels have done it. Novelists have done it. One of them is N.K. Jeminson's The Fifth Season, in which she creates a fantasy world that's unlike any other that I've ever seen. But you know that she knows the answers to those questions because it comes out um, even in the first couple chapters. You know who's in charge. You know what, how it's enforced. You know what the penalties are for transgressing it, which happens in the first chapter. You know all kinds of things because she has thought this out. And I don't know uh, Nora Jemison, so I don't know how much she plans ahead of time. But at some point, she had this in her mind, and it works. Okay, that makes sense. So for an aspiring writer, someone who wants to get into creating, they, they have this idea, and they want to move forward on it. So you lift, list the points so that you've got, so say like they want to go hard sci-fi or some aspect of science fiction, which requires a modicum of, of reality, of truth in there to build on top of. So is it uh, for yourself, how did you establish that for your hard science that you're able to do this and create and answer all those questions? Well, it's different for each book. For Beggars in Spain, again, because that's near future, some of it, and, in, and it's in the United States, some of that was already in place. I mean, I, we have a president, we have a, a Congress, we have a constitution, we have elections. The army is under the control of the president because he's commander of chief, but he is not allowed, theoretically anyway, to use the army to enforce civilian laws um, in the United States unless there is outright insurrection. So that makes a division between the powers. And of course, so does our constitution, but not all countries do that. So where is your, your very first decision is, what kind of a world are you building and where is it? Is it a world on a spaceship? Is it a world on a planet? Is it a world on a fantasy world? Is it a world in our world? Um, in the future. You have to know that or obviously you can't do anything. And then once you have that, you can go through the questions that I just outlined a few minutes ago and think, okay, who is in charge here? What do, how do I want this to work? And just think about it. List a couple different alternatives. Um, I use legal pads and I write longhand to do this, but other people do it differently. Some people write them on other possibilities on three by five cards. Some of them use Scribner on their computer. Um, some of them, but think about what your world is gonna look like. Play with various ideas until it's clear in your mind who controls this world, who controls the resources, how it is enforced, what is the, the position of religion and what is the religion in this world? And, or is there more than one? Um, 
Again, George Martin, when you read the Game of Thrones series, has got seven kingdoms, each with its own religion. He didn't plan all of that ahead of time. He started with Winterfell, and he worked on that area and that religion. How, who governs there? What is the religion there? What is the, how is it enforced? How is, how does life function there? And then when they leave Winterfell, <laughs> um, he worked on the next place. So you can do it that way. If you have a very complicated world, you can work out the details of each as you go along. Another book to really read and study is Ursula K. Le Guin's The Dispossessed, because she has three separate societies, one on Inares and two on the planet Eurus. They're very different. And in each case, it's very clear how they work, who's in charge, how authority is enforced, who gets to control resources. Read books like that and see how it's done. But your world is going to be yours, and you're going to have to be the one that thinks about these things. That's great advice. So with respect to world building, I recommend that people listen to this interview like five times because they're going to get more and more <laughs> out of it each time. <laughs> Just Let me just add one more thing here about world <laughs> building. Once you've got the major stuff in place, then you get to think about the fun stuff. This is the stuff that will make it your story visual on the page. Where do they live? What do their dwellings look like? How do they dress? Do different levels of society dress differently? What does it look like? What does the place smell like? Um, what does what kind of animals are there? Are they pets? Are they wild? Are they dangerous? What kind of crops do you want to have there? Um, that's the fun stuff. What do people do for entertainment? There's always in every society, human society, we know about. There's been some sort of gambling, whether it's throwing the bones um, in Roman times, a form of dice, or whether it's right up to video gambling. There's always some form of gambling. There's always some form of dancing. What do these people do for entertainment? This is the fun stuff to think about. But first, do the work of the infrastructure. That's great. That's amazing advice. So now for, for someone to get you know, more of an idea about you as an author, um, what would you recommend that someone read to, uh, to start discovering the world of Nancy Kress? Like, I know you've written all types of stuff, or maybe you've got, if you like this type of story, read this book. If you like that type of story, read that book. Okay, I'll do that. Um, Beggars in Spain is my most famous book. And if you like near future speculative fiction on how society might evolve, that's a good one. If, on the other hand, you're more interested in thrillers, then my own favorite among my works is actually a bio-thriller called Stinger, which again is very near future, but has some differences than ours and features an FBI agent. And I'm very fond of that book. Um, if, on the other hand, you like space opera, then I would suggest the Probability series, Probability Moon, Probability Sun, and Probability Space, which is space opera, pure space opera, interplanetary war, aliens, all of that kind of stuff. Probability Space is the book that won the John W. Campbell Memorial Award. And I think it's probably the best of the three 
But on the other hand, I think you need to read the first two or you won't get to the, <laughs> the last one. But will probably be incomprehensible. Okay, that makes sense. So now this brings up another question. So you've got three totally separate uh, genres that you're actually writing in, separating out mystery and the speculative fiction with Beggars in Space and then hard sci-fi with the uh, space opera probability series. Any particular suggestions or things that you do to be able to separate them out in your mind or do you ever do two of them concurrently just to have a, to keep some, some variety of some randomity going on the stuff? No, I can only work on one piece of fiction at a time. I know writers, I know one writer who works on six different projects at once. And when she gets bored with one, she moves to the next. I could never do that. When I'm writing a piece of fiction, I'm devoted to it. I'm married to it. To work on anything else would feel like adultery. So it's only one one piece at a time that, that I work on. And I approach them differently. The probability series is space opera, but it's really not hard science fiction. Hard science fiction to me is stuff that does not violate what we know about science, and faster than light drives do. <laughs> but I have written some hard science. Um, sea Change, one of my latest two works, is, is hard science. It's genetic engineering of crops, and everything in it is completely likely and plausible. It just hasn't happened yet. The same is true of Stinger that I mentioned earlier. Everything in it is plausible and scary but it could happen. And when I'm working on something like that, because I'm not trained as a scientist, before I start work, I make sure I understand the science that I'm going to be using completely and as thoroughly as I possibly can. I read a lot of books on genetic engineering of crops before I was ready to write Sea Change. And I have had people say, you read multiple books for a novella? Well, yes, <laughs> but also because I'm very interested in the genetic engineering of crops. So it had a, it was not just work, research work. It was something I enjoyed. But when I'm writing hard SF, the science has to come first. When I'm writing something more speculative like Beggars in Spain, and I don't need to justify a lot of it. And in fact, a lot of that science is out of date because I wrote it a while ago. Then, then that's easier on the research. But if you want to write really hard SF and you're not trained as a scientist already, then you're going to have to do research up front so that what you write is plausible. Okay, that makes sense. And then with, just as a question, because I went over this also when I did a recent interview with Larry Niven, the whole subject of what we now consider real science, you know, prior to, was it 1913, when uh, Einstein came with the theory of relativity, that whole subject was um, what was true science before that was taken to a new level than when uh, Einstein came out. So then it, it changed what was true. And do you have any concept or any thought of like, right now science dictates that here's, here's the wall. We can't go past that because this is what we know. That there's any um, plausibility to the role of science fiction helping to move the wall out a little bit further or to have possibilities and just because of grounding it in what we know science right now to be able to then meld that wall so it goes a little bit further? Yes, I think not only can it, it has to. Because if you don't go beyond what science is doing right now, then you're not really writing science fiction. You're writing a mainstream novel with science in it. 
um, there has you have to take it a little farther in some ways. The question of whether it qualifies as hard SF, at least to me, is how plausibly do you do that? Right. I mean, like E. E. Doc Smith, when he, you know, had the guy discover something by a fluke in the garage, and all of a sudden he had faster than light travel. That's definitely Pulp Fiction. But you know, how do you do something now to to make that plausibility? I guess that's where having your research, asking those questions to yourself, you know, that that really builds a real world that now something can then take place and move forward with something that right now science says can't be done, but then you can see how it can be done. Yes, that's exactly right. If you're going to write, take something, a next step, take science, an entirely next step, then you have to understand how science and scientists work. And it's not somebody inventing faster than light in their garage. It just isn't. Um, Computers, yes, in the garage. There were a whole bunch of those garage kids that managed to go there. But they were building on existing science. They weren't developing any new ideas. They were putting existing ideas together in new ways. If you're going to have a really new idea, then you have to understand what you're building on the shoulders of already and how it could plausibly go forward. But I do want to say that not all good science fiction has to be hard SF. Some of it just takes um, science and uses it as a metaphor, especially in short fiction. And that can work fine, too. And if you have aliens coming to Earth and interacting with us in a 3,000-word story, we don't really need to know, well, how did they learn English, and can they breathe our air, and what about the microbes that they can't use here? And we don't need all of that in a 3,000-word story, because you're using aliens to represent some other aspect of humanity. Ursula Le Guin said, whenever we write about aliens, we're writing about the other gender. I'm not sure it's only about the other gender, but it might be another race, or it might be whatever you conceive of as other. And in that, in, in a short fiction, yes, that works. And you don't need to deal with all of the, the hard SF questions. If you're writing a novel, though, and you have aliens coming to Earth and speaking English and breathing our air and being able to deal with our microbes, even though they arrived in a, evolved in a different place, then you better explain why if you want to convince me. That makes good sense. And that, that also differentiates between the short fiction and the long and super long. Yes, well, this has been great, and I've really enjoyed being able to have a, this uh, talk with you, Nancy, because this is such a subject that people often attempt and frequently fail at miserably. So this uh, hopefully will provide some good tips for them to be able to take it to the next level that actually works. Well, thank you, John. Um, I appreciate what Writers of the Future does for young writers, the chance that it gives them, the contest. And I really think... One of the reasons I teach so much is that I think one of the great pleasures of having had a long career in science fiction, and it sometimes seemed to me that I started writing in the early Jurassic, (laughs) one of the great pleasures of that is the ability to pay it forward and to help the people coming up. Well, it's very much appreciated, and your contribution is, is, like I said, very, very much appreciated. If someone wants to to discover you or to find out more about you or to reach you, um, what should they do? Where do they go? Well, they could go to my website, but it probably isn't going to be much help since I haven't touched it in three years. I'm not much of a, of a computer person. Um, I guess the best thing to do is to read my, read my books. Good. <laughs> also, I will be 
the guest of honor at Worldcon next year in 2021 in D.C., if they actually are able to hold it, which I'm hoping that by a year from a year from now will be possible. And I will be there doing whatever it is they want me to do. Well, that'd be awesome. I look forward to seeing you there. I definitely want to come at that point. Again, thank you very much for uh, this interview. And thank you, everybody who's listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Writers of the Future podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, Player FM, iHeart, and Spotify. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elrond Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to new and amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Nancy. Thank you.